Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Another year, another cop. Together, we can ensure a sustainable, thriving world for all. This Thursday, COP28 begins, and it's already looking like it'll be an unusual climate conference. Climate change campaigners have expressed outrage at the appointment of the head of one of the world's biggest oil companies as president of this year's UN Climate Summit in the United Arab Emirates. Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, who heads Abu Dhabi's national oil company, is the nation's climate envoy. The COP conferences are the two weeks of the year when governments and the news focus on the climate catastrophe barreling towards us. But serious questions are already being asked about the credibility of this year's host. The BBC has learned that the United Arab Emirates is using its role, or at least plans to use its role as the host of the latest round of UN climate talks, as an opportunity to strike oil deals. We approached the UAE's COP28 team to ask them about this. They did not deny doing it. They said private meetings are private and they won't comment. Of course, they also said, look, we're working really hard to try and achieve the um, best result from the climate summit itself. They said to, to suggest otherwise would be, and I quote, a distraction. So what can we expect from COP28? How have countries been doing on meeting their climate goals in the meantime? Are there glimmers of hope? And is this week's conference a sign that even oil companies accept the need for change? Or does it prove that their economic interests will always reign supreme? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, COP28, the climate conference hosted by an oil exec. I'm Adam Vaughan. I'm the environment editor at The Times. Adam, you're about to head off to COP28. Just give us a quick reminder, what exactly is a COP? It feels like they come around quite often. So this is the Conference of the Parties. This is the nearly 200 countries who are party to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the basically the international deal agreed more than 30 years ago to do something about the fact that the planet's warming up too fast. And this is the 28th of them. The reason it doesn't quite add up to the right number of years is because COVID put things out uh. of kilter a bit. 
This year's is going to be particularly interesting because COP28 is starting on Thursday in Dubai. Uh, on the one hand, you've sort of got all the glitz of this high-end holiday destination. On the other hand, is it quite a difficult place to do business? I mean, how much do you think it being hosted in the UAE will impact the way people can work? Well, I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think there's, you know, it was an interesting incident where, like, as part of the process for applying as a journalist, you had to go through these various forms and websites and so on. And there was this document put up saying that you can't, reporters may not publish anything that will offend the rulers of the kingdom, basically. I, I paraphrase. Um, That's it, not something you usually have to consider. It's not, and it's not something any sort of British journalist or most, you know, is going to want to is, sign is going to observe. And, you know, the worst they're going to do is take your accreditation away and that's going to become even badder news for them. But anyway, long story short, they backtracked on this. They said it, they withdrew the document. They said it was a mistake. Who knows? I don't know. There's also another part of it is surveillance. So, you know, there was concerns at Egypt last year. There were quite acute concerns about spying by the Egyptian government. I think it's slightly less so at UAE and Dubai, but it's definitely an issue. Was it very obvious in Egypt? It was kind of embarrassingly cartoonishly obvious in oh. Egypt. Guys with very broad, you know, shoulders filming young activists when they did little mini protests and... All the UK and German government officials will have burner phones and it was quite obvious in Egypt. Well, let's hope taking <laughs> your accreditation is the worst they can do. If not, we'll crowdfund your bail. Let's hope so. Otherwise, this is the last. You, you, can, you, can, you, you can use some of this for my appeal. <laughs> so, Adam, that's the difficulty for journalists in covering this COP. But over the weekend, there's been sort of some leaked documents have emerged that suggest that there might be far bigger problems to cop altogether um, in Dubai. Before we get onto those documents, just start by telling us a little bit about the man chairing COP28, because this is where a lot of the controversy seems to start. So the talks in Dubai are being chaired by a guy called Dr. Sultan Al-Jabba. He is effectively the chair of the talks. He also is the head of ADNOC, which is one of the world's biggest state-run oil and gas firms. And he's also the head of Mazdar, which is the UAE's renewable energy company. So he has multiple hats, and the COP28 team have always insisted that he keeps those hats separate. But Quite we've... an interesting choice, though, to put an oil CEO in charge of COP28. Yeah, it's obvious. As you can imagine, it's been very controversial amongst environmentalists and um, some countries, although they don't say so publicly. I mean, why is that? <laughs> well, because he's the host. And you don't want. To, they're all very diplomatic in the in, in the public realm about what they say. Does he actually have? any credentials around climate change? So, I mean, look... I, the, Apart the, from selling lots of oil, which <laughs> seems to have the opposite effect. So, although on this, on the one hand, you could sort of take a kind of pantomime view of him being the, the baddie or something, the you know, people I've spoken to who know him say he's actually on the good end of things on climate change and the United States in some leaked diplomatic cables described him as on the sort of progressive end of the UAE government when it came to climate change. Transforming the world's energy systems represents the greatest opportunity for human and economic development since the first industrial revolution. It is this industry's opportunity to reinvent itself and lead again. Let me call on you to decarbonize quicker, future-proof sooner, and create the energy system 
of the future today. It's all relative, right? You know, you, you've got to view him in the context of the country from which he's coming from. Yeah. Which is the world's seventh biggest oil producer. Yeah. But, that, but again, that will make a lot of people wonder whether it was the right country to be hosting COP28 full stop, really. There were questions about the choice of an oil CEO as, as chair. I mean, I suppose in some ways it might be seen as quite clever in that if you can win over the oil CEOs, you're more likely to make proper lasting change. But then these documents emerged... Well, what we've got hold of is a kind of cache of documents. These are briefing documents drawn up by the UAE's COP28 team for its president. And they show that with at least 27 countries, they were planning to raise possible business deals, including oil and gas deals. Now, tell us about those. You've seen them now. Yeah, so these documents are sort of more than 150 pages of briefings prepared for Al Jabba by his staffers. And these are meetings he had ahead of COP with different countries, which is his job to go out and meet these other countries and sort of pave the ground. These are the talking points prepared for him with like when he goes and meets France and uh, Germany and China and the UK and so on. And the controversial thing is that they include, if you look through them all, at the foot of each one, it has talking points about Adnok and Mazda. So effectively, he was being briefed to go and raise effectively self-interested commercial opportunities with other countries at the same time as preparing the ground for a good climate deal. And that's obviously difficult when you've got, well, it's interesting, shall we say, when you've got a a country that has self-interest in producing more oil and gas trying to forge a deal which is about reducing the use of oil and gas. So you can see the conflicts there. The big question over it, and these documents were obtained by the Centre for Climate Reporting, the big sort of unknown is exactly how many of these talking points actually got raised in the meetings. We know he was briefed to talk about them. We don't know precisely because we weren't in those meetings and they were private. We don't know exactly what was discussed. But that's fascinating. So you've got sort of, as far as his office is concerned, these are the 10 things he must bring up in this meeting and you've got some meetings there where he's meeting countries in order to encourage them to meet their targets on climate change, but at the same time raising the prospect of deals on fossil fuels. Effectively, yes. That's, that's, that's basically the long and short of it. And, you know, that is sort of problematic on a couple of levels. One is, the, as you say, the straightforward seeming tension between the aims of the climate deal in COP28 and what his country is pushing. And the second is just that that's not meant to be the role of a president of the talks. You know, the UNFCCC, the UN body that runs it, has a very clear sort of view on this. It's all meant to be impartial and it's not about furthering the self-interest of a host nation. That's not what it is about. Sure, you might might get some prestige if it goes well, like France did with Paris in 2015, or you might get some censure if it goes badly, like, you know, Denmark with Copenhagen in 2009, but it's not meant to be about furthering your commercial agenda. Is that going to knock confidence in this particular COP? I think it will ramp up pressure a bit on UAE as the host country. I think ultimately it's a great story, but it won't have any material impact on the climate talks is my sense. You know, there's no alternative at this stage of the game to the UAE hosting, right, or to Al Jabba being the president. I mean, in theory, they could get rid of him and say, look, this is inappropriate. But from the way we've seen the COP28 presidency operate in the last year, that's clearly not going to happen. I mean, I'll eat my hat if that that happens. Adam, there are many reasons why this is quite an unusual cop. The other, not just the hosts, but some of the guests. Yes, there's a funny sort of constellation of people coming. 
The opening ceremony will include Antonio Guterres, who's the UN Secretary General. Like, fair enough, so far so standard. It will include King Charles, his first time as monarch. There was a hiatus last year. He was it was felt mm. inappropriate by the Trust administration for him to go so shortly after the Queen's death and to be his first big international engagement. So he'll be there. He has been at lots of previous COPs, it's worth saying, and he's obviously a big environmentalist. So he'll be there. And then you've also got, you know, people like the Pope. And then it's the first time he's there for three days. He's likely to make some sort of pronouncement on Saturday. And he's the first ever Pope to attend the UN Climate Summit. And there's other religious leaders from other faiths as well, I should point out. Adam, you've been covering climate change for some time now. It feels like there was a lot of momentum behind COP26 a couple of years ago. Since COP26, public attention, certainly the media attention, has waned. And we didn't see as much coming out of Egypt last year. It doesn't seem to be much expectation of this year. There certainly hasn't been much preparing of the ground. In the meantime, have countries actually been keeping up with targets? I mean, is uh, is all of that being monitored? How are they doing? So there was a what's called the global stock take. There was a big sort of the first kind of assessment by the UN of where we were at since Paris eight years ago. That came a couple of months ago. And if it was a GCSE, you'd probably get like a three or a two. <laughs> you know, it's not a it was not a good score. You know, the um what we found very recently is that all the national climate plans that have been put forward, they put us on track for the world warming by about three degrees by this the end of the century. The context for that is we've already warmed by about 1.1, 1.2 degrees, and we agreed under Paris to hit 1.5 at best or well below two at worst. So you can see we're quite a lot off track for that. The sort of glass half full version of that is before Paris, we were probably on track for more than four degrees. So there has been progress. We've bent the curve, if you want to use the sort of COVID language, but we haven't bent it enough. Global emissions are still growing. They need to basically halve by the end of this decade. It doesn't look like we're going to do that. Coming up, the global report card doesn't look good, but there could be better news when you look at how individual countries are doing. That's in just a moment. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. So, Adam, you were just telling us that globally, you know, if this was a GCSE, we'd be scoring a three or a two, which obviously isn't great. Let's just drill down into that a little bit more. And just give us a sense of the individual report cards around the world. So let's start with America. So the United States is an interesting one because obviously it became a kind of renegade in climate circles under Trump, um, even withdrew from the Paris Agreement, which was kind of incredible. So it had these kind of wilderness years, which mattered in terms of not just its own targets and efforts to cut emissions, but it's hard to overstate what an important role it plays at these climate talks in terms of bringing countries together and convening and the power it has so that was really missed sorely and then that has obviously pretty much turned 180 under joe biden so the big thing he has done is this nearly 400 billion dollar deal package called the inflation reduction act the ira and that is all about basically a load of carrots for things like wind and solar power and electric vehicles and particularly a fo- onus for American companies to make them at home rather than building them somewhere else and importing them. So that has been a big fillip. And, and whatever happens in next year's US election, it's important to say, mm. if Trump were to win and come back, that deal, the way it's structured, is very hard for him to unpick. So it, it does feel like a, wow. long, a long-term legacy that Biden will be able to point to. Very clever to call it the Inflation Reduction Act. It's a good way of selling it to people, you know, by investing in green energy. Oil prices won't send inflation rocketing again. Show them how it helps them in their pocket. Yeah, Biden's rhetoric has been all about this is about jobs and economy and not talking about carbon emissions. And that's, you know, I think that's a fair sell. Well, it's interesting that Biden won't be at COP28. We're now finding out. Does that mean he doesn't have as much faith in in COP28 or that he's not as committed to climate change? I think it probably, I mean, look, I think it's not ideal that he's not there. I don't think, given the role he played at COP27 was pretty minor when he went there and he gave a sort of fairly unimpressive speech there. I don't think it really matters that he's not there in the scheme of things, given that there's more than 100 heads of state that are. And one of the other things that Biden accomplished was this US-China deal. Just tell us a little bit about that. So just recently, we had this cooperation deal from the US and China called the Sunnyland Statement when Xi Jinping was in the US. And really, if you look at the detail of it, it's quite a short document. It's really sort of reiterating some of the promises the two countries made at Glasgow a couple of years ago. So it's mainly a sort of broad thrust of we'll cooperate on cutting emissions, has some language about substituting fossil fuels for renewables, has some language around cooperating on cutting methane, which is, you know, the second most important greenhouse gas after CO2. So it sort of has various sector by sector references. Those are two of the key things it mentions. It's it's quite broad brush, but it's seen by observers as important because these are the two biggest emitters, right? And they, so they sort of have the future of the world in their hands. And that brings us perfectly to the next country we should be talking about, which is, of course, China. How have they been doing? So China is about 31% of global emissions. So you can see why people say that these sort of cops live or die. You know, the future of the planet pretty much is in China's hands. China, you know, is sometimes painted as like a villain at these things, sometimes painted as a pioneer. You know, it's still massively dependent on coal. There's no getting around that. However, 
it's been installing kind of mind-boggling amounts of wind and solar power this year in particular it's chucking up offshore wind farms at a rate that sort of exceeds the rest of the world combined and because of that there's an expectation that next year chinese emissions might fall for the first time in recent years because of their climate change efforts and because they're doing so much on green energy so that would be big and we should say while they're building a lot of renewable sources of, of energy they're also still building coal-powered stations. They are still building coal-powered stations, and that is obviously an issue. They've they've stopped financing them abroad, but they haven't stopped building them at home. Mm. I mean, look, you can totally view it both ways with China. They're sort of growing in terms of affluence and therefore energy demand. The good news is, at the moment, that wind and solar growth is slightly outstripping the energy demand. So... I think things are as positive as they ever will be with China. China's got this weird thing at the climate talks of kind of its strategy is under promise and over deliver. That's their sort of shtick. I mean, that sounds more positive than I was expecting. There's reasons for hope around China. I think there's reasons for hope. We're off track, but there's reasons for hope. Yeah. And do you think these leaked documents that you've seen that have come out of the UAE this weekend showing that they're trying to make bilateral deals with China, does, does that change anything? I think the leaked documents from the UAE, I think they're quite inflammatory. I don't think they'll materially change some of the negotiations because that's largely really about real politics and geopolitics that's baked in already. But I do think it's definitely going to ramp up the focus on the role the UAE is playing. Does it show that UAE doesn't really believe that China is committed to these targets? I mean, they're still trying to do I think deals it's, on this I think, stuff. Look, it shows that, you know, let's, let's face it with China, they're having the cake and eating it, aren't they, right? You know, they're still building lots of coal plants. And, you know, this talks about these documents say show that UAE was looking at working with China on joint projects in Australia, Mozambique, Canada. So, you know, clearly, <laughs> clearly China is sort of having it both ways. It's building a load of wind and solar, but it's still looking at producing more fossil fuels. And what about India, another one of the big polluters? So India is interesting because obviously it's also got a lot of coal. It's also been building a lot of solar. And the thing that's probably most interesting about India at the moment in its role at COP28 is a couple of years ago at Glasgow, India was pretty much the reason that Alok Sharma left in tears. Because I don't know if you remember, in the 11th hour, they inserted a phrase weakening the language around phasing out coal. After a day of these kind of negotiations, really about what was in the third draft mm. of this agreement, what happened was India put forward an argument with China that they changed the language from phase out of unabated coal to phase down unabated coal. It sounds like a small deal, but like it was a big deal to a lot of countries. Mm. And India was behind that. And Alok Sharma ended up, was so emotional and so exhausted at that point, he broke down in tears. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I am deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Now, India at this COP has a lit on this strategy that it started last year, but failed on, of trying to get some sort of language in the deal about phasing out all fossil fuels. So the feeling is there's a sort of no, a rough sort of nod to that in this US-China statement, that they're sort of maybe on board with that, some sort of language around that. 
and the EU is really heavily pushing it. The UK is behind it. There's a lot of players who are behind it. So there's a feeling that the stars are sort of as well aligned as they ever could be for some sort of promise to phase out fossil fuels. I mean, that would be huge. It would be big. I mean, you know, the cynical part of me would say, well, two years ago, everyone promised to phase down coal. And hey, look, coal use has still been going up, including in India. Mm. Um, What about the EU? How have they been performing compared to targets? So the EU are generally seen as like the good guys, you know, if we're going to make it into a sort of pantomime, uh, which quite often we do as journalists when we're doing these things. Um, the EU has they sort like of, a target, they stick to it. They like a target. Their, their target's not, you know, the UK government likes to point out that our target for 2030 for cutting emissions is better than theirs, which is true. It is, you know, it's like, what, ours is 68%, theirs is 55%, you know, so yes, it's better. I think one of the interesting things the EU is going to do is play in terms of the role it will play is um, about this thing called the loss and damage fund. So this is like the main achievement of last year's talks, which was a fund to help vulnerable countries who are coping with the ravages of climate change. So for example, the flooding we saw in Pakistan that caused about $15 billion worth of damage. The idea is that it will that fund will hopefully now get filled up with some money. And the EU has already promised a substantial sum of money. We don't know what exactly yet, but the expectation is that it will be among the key players filling up this pot it's probably going to be in the sort of hundreds of millions, which, you know, obviously when you put it in the context of one flooding incident in one country costing 15 billion is nowhere near enough, but it's a start. And you mentioned that, you know, the UK had promised to go further, faster, set even stricter targets. How are we doing? Are we likely to meet them? So we've done well in the past, the UK, there is no doubt about that. And oh man, ministers won't, take, won't miss any opportunity to tell you that. The problem is the sort of trajectory that we're on for the future. So we've done a lot of the easy stuff in some senses. So we've massively decarbonized our electricity system by mm. pushing out coal and you know, building out renewables, in particular wind. And that's great, but that's largely happened with like you and I and everyone listening to this not really seeing that. That doesn't really change how you go about your day-to-day life. No, the stuff we haven't that's, felt it. haven't felt it. And the stuff that's coming now, which is like, okay, you rather than a petrol or diesel car, you might need an electric one, or rather than a gas boiler, you might need a heat pump. It's not like asking you to go and live in a cave and wear a sackcloth, but those are clearly requiring more change from people. The government's own projections show that it's going to slightly fall short of its climate targets for the 2030s. The Independent Climate Change Committee had this report out in the summer saying that it was less confident than a year ago of the government meeting its climate targets. So there are genuine concerns about are we on the right path? And it doesn't then help having the Prime Minister standing up in September and giving a speech where he says, oh, going too fast on this stuff is, you know, too much of a burden on ordinary people and it's not proportionate and so on. It cannot be right for Westminster to impose such significant costs on working people, especially those who are already struggling to make ends meet, and to interfere so much in people's way of life without a properly informed national debate. Adam, do cops generally achieve much? Are they, as Greta Thunberg sort of said, blah, blah, blah? Or, you know, having, as a veteran who's attended so many, you know, are they worth it? I think it's really easy to get really jaded about these climate summits, right? And I think quite often, you know, I have certainly heard from mates before when, you know, I'm heading off to one, they're like, oh, you know, I see all these people flying in and like, why are they all flying there? And do they really need to go? And like, yes, there's like a legitimate debate to be had over how many people should go, like about 
44,000 people went to Egypt. You know, do we really need that many people? Probably not. The way I've sort of flip-flopped on this, and I think I've landed on the view that these are worthwhile. I say that for sort of two reasons. One, from a very self-interested journalistic point of view, that climate change is like a slow burn thing, right? It was there yesterday, it's here today, it's going to be there tomorrow. Mm. But it's quite hard sometimes to do as a news story because of that. And so for two weeks of year, everyone has to pretend they care about climate change. And there's a certain kind of peer pressure thing on world leaders to, you know, oh, hey, I'm wait, Biden's saying that. What are you doing? You know, Ursula von der Leyen. So there's that side of it. And then I think there's the more substantive side, which is these things do actually matter in the real world. Yes, there's a lot of talk, but when they agree things, it does send signals. You know, companies do sit up and take note. And as I was saying earlier, you know, we were on track for circa more than four degrees of warming we're now on track for about three degrees. That's crap and nowhere near good enough, but it shows that this has had an impact. So I don't know, I think it's very easy to be cynical. Do we tear the whole thing up and do something else? I mean, really, do we really have the time? I don't think we do. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Environment Editor for The Times, Adam Vaughan. If you're a subscriber, you can follow all of Adam's dispatches from Dubai at thetimes.co.uk. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producers today were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by Hannah Varrell. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll help others to find us. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.